0: Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, once again, I want to say welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is just a joy to have you with us this morning for joining us online. A special welcome to you as well. On Thursday night, after we got done meeting with our small group, Kelly and I, my wife Kelly and I went over to Palomar Hospital to visit Virginia Sanderson. She's a dear 89 year old woman who's been a mainstay in our front row in the 1045 service for years. You probably recognized her. She typically comes in a few minutes late. She uh, slowly makes her way down the aisle with her walker, and then it takes a team of about three people to get her seated one to take the walker, another to help lower her down into the seat, and then another to put a little pillow in back of her to make sure that she's comfortable. I, I always thought she brought the pillow. It turns out one of you guys bring the pillow. Um, and um, I, I, it's one of the reasons I love being a part of the church, because that's just the kind of thing we do. But we went to Palomar because um, we thought that Virginia was going to meet Jesus face-to-face real soon. And Kelly and I wanted to say goodbye. There was a bacterial infection that was just wreaking havoc on her insides. And so we gathered around her and we just wanted to let her know we were going to miss her. Uh, We prayed for her. We read scripture with her um, and thought that that was probably the last time that we were going to see her. It turns out she's, pretty tough. Um, <laughs> she might be here next Sunday. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> but we wanted to just express our, our love to her. And as the next day I was, I was sitting in our um, home preparing for this message and just thinking about Virginia and praying for her. Um, I just had this sense that, yeah, there's something that's eaten away at her, but there's really something that's eating away at, at all of us. I mean, there's something that, that's in the process of of sort of messing with all of us, destroying all of us. In his recent and brilliant book, Pastor Rich Viola's his book was entitled Good and Beautiful and Kind. He based the title of his book off of a Langston Hughes poem. And the poem goes like this. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you? For the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating At the rind. I thought that the power of that and the provocative nature of that poem just struck me once again. And the Bible says that there's a word for what's eating away at all of us. And the word for what's eating at us is is sin. It's what's behind the cycles of violence that we've experienced throughout the history of our world. It's what's behind the latest mass shooting. How many of you are tired and waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? Yeah, It's what's behind poverty and inequality. It's what's behind sickness and death. See, sin is a silent killer that lurks around the dark corners of the good story that God is telling, constantly trying to steal the plot and make life about death. but, But here's the deal, you guys. The scriptures aren't gonna let us off easily and say that that problem is somewhere out there. As if to say, like, let's just cut the world in two and figure out what's going on. And but we're we're innocent. <laughs> now there's a popular story that circulated uh, a while ago about a London newspaper in the early part of the 20th century that was running an article and asking the question, "What's wrong with the world?" Uh, the popular author G.K. Chesterton wrote in, and he said, "What is wrong with the world, dear sir? I am." Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) As if to say the problem isn't just something that's going on out there. The problem is something that's going on in here. What's eating away at the world is also eating away at me. Can we maybe through gritted teeth utter our amen to that? Amen. Amen. Two of you can. Wonderful. (laughs) We're in a series that we've entitled, This Is Our Story. And every story has twists and turns. Every story has tension. Every story has this question mark that sort of traces its way throughout the story. Every good story has a point at which it looks like things are gonna go off track. There's tension. That's what makes a story good. That's what draws us in. That's what keeps us reading. And the story that we find ourselves in is no different. If you have your Bible, would you open me to Luke chapter 15? And today we're going to jump into one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. But I think it's so famous, this story of what we might call the prodigal son or the prodigal father. It's so famous because I think on a very human level, we, we sense a resonance with this story. And it's not just the story of Emmanuel faith, and it's not just the story of Christians. It's the story of every person that has ever walked the face of the earth, that, that every single person can find themselves somewhere in this story, And today, we're going to see Jesus paint a picture of the nature of sin. Now, volumes have been written on the nature of sin. Much debate has arisen about the nature of sin. And yet in a few verses, Jesus in his absolute rabbinic brilliance is going to paint a picture for us to hold on to that I think is going to draw us in. And as we talked about last week, the story is not just about teaching us something new. It's about developing sort of a home for us to climb inside of and to explore so that we can then sense the rhythms of our own heart in some new ways and hopefully taste God's grace in new levels. Amen. Listen to the way that Jesus began. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. I'd suggest to you that the first two verses give us a picture of the nature of sin and the next few verses paint a picture of the process and the results of sin. I'm gonna tackle part one today, only two verses. And if you're going, hey, Paulson, does that mean we're gonna get out of here early? No, okay. Um, And then next week we're gonna talk about the process and the results of sin. But I wanna start by just inviting you in to sort of feel the emotions of this story. I mean, don't we want to go up to the father and and just sort of give him a hug and say, "Gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry that you're being treated this way. I'm so sorry that you've been betrayed." Uh, don't don't you want to go up to the younger son and just shake him and go, "Don't do it, man." Like, like, don't, don't leave your, your father's house. And I don't want it to be lost on us that Jesus in his, in his, in his sort of unpacking a picture of us for our story starts with a picture of a family, a family. That this, this breach of relationship happens in a, in a family context, um, I don't think we should lose it that sight of that because really Jesus is telling us what we might call a meta-narrative. It's a story that's a picture of a bigger story that we're supposed to read this and we're supposed to go, yeah, me too. This is my story. That the way that God originally created the world, you can go back and you can read it in Genesis one through three, is God designed the world to experience his goodness and grace and mercy. He designed Adam and Eve to live in union with him and to experience his love and care and provision. And Adam and Eve said, no thank you, we'll go our own way. And when Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 15, he is echoing that age old story of something that's gone wrong in a family. It's the reason that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our father in heaven, how will it be your name? See, the gravity of sin can only be rightly understood when we see it in the context of the destruction of a family of the destruction of of God's family. And as we see it in reflection of God's broken heart, it's well-documented that when the younger son says to his father, give me my share of the property, it's akin to him saying, uh, you know, you're better off to me dead. Or maybe with a little bit more teeth, I wish you were dead. After all, the division of wealth typically took place at the patriarchs death. Scholar uh, Kenneth Bailey, who spent most of his academic life teaching in Lebanon, and he did an experiment where he would read parables to uh, the native people around the Middle East, and he would ask them, what do you hear in this story? And it, it, it struck him that whether he went to Morocco or Turkey or Sudan, the implications of the son's requests were the same in every group he read the story to. Here's what they said. The conversation runs as follows the people would respond, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? They would say, impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him on the head, of course. Like obviously the father would beat him on the head, right? Why? Because the request means he wants his father to die. The younger son wants his father's stuff, but he doesn't want The Father. It's pretty dark. It's pretty grim. But I think we have to echo the reality that this is our story. If we're ever gonna get to the end of it where our hearts explode with the mercy and grace of God afresh. So let me say it as, I'm not gonna soft pedal it. I'm gonna say it as directly as I can. Jesus is affirming that in the human rebellion against God that we call sin, really what we're saying to God is, I wish you were dead. Now, we probably all have something that comes to mind when we think of that word sin. It may be something that we struggle with. It may be something that was done to us. Maybe we know our our Bible really well and it's a list of, of sins that the Bible identifies. But one of the things Jesus is teaching, and please, we've got to get this. We have got to understand what he's teaching is that sin is a breach in relationship before it's ever a breaking of law. Sin is first and foremost relationship gone bad between us and God before it's ever something that happens in a courtroom. You are guilty. Before there's ever that declaration, there's a breach in relationship. In fact, if you were to go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 17 that talks about the division of property What you'll find is that a younger son was owed one third of the property, but it doesn't say when his father dies. It's implied, certainly, but it's never stated. I think the son would have a case if he said, I'm not breaking the law. No, but you certainly are breaking the relationship. Now that's important for us because as Western-minded followers of Jesus, which most of us are here, we tend to view sin in guilt and innocent categories. Are we guilty or are we innocent? And certainly the scriptures talk about guilt and innocence a lot. But on a more foundational level, when the scriptures talk about sin, they talk about a breach in relationship before they ever talk about a breaking of law. It's the reason that the only time Jesus defines eternal life, listen to the way he defines it. He says, and this is eternal life, that they, say it with me, church, yeah. know you, the only God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, how would you define and explain eternal life? He would say, well, it's knowing God. It's living in the father's house now and forever more. And friends, this is what we were designed for. This is what our hearts long for. Even when we leave home, that desire for home never goes away, amen? C.S. Lewis put it poignantly when he said our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. He goes, that longing for home is an echo of design and a reminder that we have all in our own way and our own time said back to our creator, give me mine, give me mine. Thanks, but I will take it from here. And what I wanna do over the next few minutes is I just wanna dive into these first two verses and try to unpack for us the nature of sin. And here's what I wanna invite you to do. I know it's difficult and I know it's hard. And I know you're probably like, gosh, I wish so-and-so was here. (laughs) But would you let this story speak to you? Maybe just ask God some questions like, gosh, Lord, is there anything in my soul that you would wanna point out, bring to the surface so that I can say back to you, yes, that's there and I confess it to you and I wanna run back to you in life. Can we do that together? Here's the way that Jesus began the story. There's a younger son he said to his father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Everybody say, give me. me. Now everybody say, give me in your best three-year-old whiny voice. One, two, three. Give me. Right, so you've heard that before, right? <laughs> Whether you have kids or you've been around kids or maybe you have infants, that, that this phrase is coming for you, friends. Give me. And you almost get the sense that Jesus wants us to hear it in a, in a whiny, nasally, kid-demanding voice. They stole my toy and I want it back. Give me mine. Give me mine. We have a word for that, don't we? The word is selfishness. And I'd suggest to you that selfishness is a great word that captures the heart and nature of sin. Because sin is a a heart of, of selfishness. It's a heart that says back to God, give me mine. Now remember, Jesus isn't just telling a faith story. He's not just telling the Christian story. He's telling the human race's story. And Adam and Eve were placed in a garden and they were invited to live in loving union with God, but they were also given a choice. Are you gonna live in union with God or are you gonna go about this on your own? Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17, read like this. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of Every tree, everyone say every tree, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what die so adam 's created with a choice: live in relationship with God by, by eating this tree of life, or reject God, go your own way, and assume that you know better than him, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But listen to the way that things go wrong. Chapter three, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She's being drawn in by 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 her desires, by her lust, she saw it. It was a delight to the eyes. Oh, there's this compelling draw. You can be wise. Me, 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 I, I, I. And at the heart of sin is Adam and Eve caving in on themselves, echoing what the younger son would say, give me mine. The apostle John expresses this expulsive pull of selfishness when he describes sin by saying this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Someone say, "Ouch." ouch. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the father, but it's from the world. So catch this, friends. When John writes to the churches about sin, he writes about a war of affections that's going on in your heart, that ultimately sin is about what you love. Because sin at its core is a breach in relationship before it's ever a break in law. So, and even if we'd say, gosh, Ryan, I... I don't know that I'm all that selfish. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> when you see a group picture that you're in, who's the first person you look for? <laughs> Let's close in prayer, right? When, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, who's the first person you think about? You. When when after much analysis, you choose the slower line at the grocery store, mistakenly, who's the first person you're concerned about? When somebody interrupts your day, what's your first thought? Right, exactly. (laughs) Dennis Kinlaw wrote this, he said, and behind the shift from trust and communion to suspicion and separation was an overriding concern for themselves. Speaking about Adam and Eve, and I would say the younger son also, an overriding concern for themselves. Uh, Comedian Brian Regan has this funny bit where he talks about the me monster. And the me monster is a person that shows up at the party and regardless of how good of a story you tell, they have a better one. The, The one upper guy at the party. And at some point they're like, oh yeah, well I walked on the moon. Me. And I think Jesus would look at us and gently with love in his eyes say, we've all got a me monster somewhere inside of us. Give me mine. This is our story. And here's what I want you to catch. This is a really sad part about this nature of sin that is captured in the heart of selfishness. The younger son's sin affects everybody around him and he doesn't realize it and he doesn't care. See, back in Jesus's day, people lived in large households where there was a community in dependence on the land and on each other. And so to give away a third of the land would mean that everybody else in the community was poorer because of it. Everybody has less. Or we might say it like this, everybody who lives in the father's house is poorer because of the younger son's selfishness. So let me just pause and let's acknowledge collectively that the same is true of us also. Our sin makes everybody else suffer. There's no such thing as a private individual sin that only affects you let me say that to the parents in the room. There's no such thing as a private individual sin that only affects you. To the grandparents, there's no such thing as a sin that only affects you. To the friends, there's no such thing as a sin that only affects you. To the married couple, there's no such thing as a sin that only affects you. It always ripple out, ripples out onto the people around us and usually onto the people we love most. I think Jesus wants us to wrestle with the fact that everybody else is poorer because of it. So, the nature of sin, we see this, this me monster. Or, and Krabat doesn't say, as the early theologians would say, a heart that's just curved in on itself. Here's the second thing I want you to recognize um, Who does the younger son listen to in the story? Right, no one. <laughs> who does the younger son take with him when he goes? No one. Who does a younger son submit his life to and take advice from? No one, no one. It's conspicuously absent. And here we start to see another piece of the nature of sin. Sin isn't just a heart of selfishness. It's a quest for autonomy. It's not only I want what's mine, but it's also I wanna do it my way. A number of scholars have pointed out that Jesus tells his story in a way where he avoids having the younger son use the word inheritance. You may have caught that. The younger son says, father, give me my share of the what? Of the property. That word inheritance is a common word that's used in the New Testament. It's used 14 different times in the New Testament. It would be the most logical word to use in this case. But the younger son avoids using the word inheritance, presumably because he doesn't want to think about it that way. Inheritance implies some form of responsibility, doesn't it? It's, Father, you've built this. And now my share of it, I'm gonna continue to build on what you have constructed and what you've designed and what you're doing. But the younger son wants absolutely no part of that. The prodigal demands his privilege without any sense of responsibility. We have a word for that. You know what we call that? Entitlement. That's what we call it. We call it entitlement. He wants the father's stuff, but he doesn't want to honor the father with it. The quest for autonomy, I think, is echoed throughout the book of Judges, this sort of low point in Israel's history when seven times in the book, the phrase is uttered and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the younger son's story. This is Adam and Eve's story. This is our story. It's our story. See, we choose sin when we say to God, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I don't care about what you think about how I should live. Now, let's just hit pause right here. Let's put a pin in this and explore it a little bit. Because if we were having this conversation over a cup of coffee, some of you might say back to me in a moment of honesty, well, Ryan, aren't we supposed to like be true to ourselves. You know where the Bible says that? Precisely nowhere, (laughs) nowhere. But it's certainly the sin tainted air that we breathe. I think Elaine McGinnis in her 2015 book, Unleash Your Authentic Self, captured sort of the zeitgeist of our age so well when she wrote, you can set yourself free from your struggles and pain in life by expressing your authentic self. You know what'll help you? Get free from that pain? Express. You got to express yourself, right? <laughs> Expressing your authentic self gives you the freedom to co-create your life with the universe according to what you desire. You forge a path for yourself with limitless opportunities, abundance, and prosperity and in expressing your authentic self free yourself to experience the abundance and prosperity in life that you were that were always designed as your what birthright I love that because it just echoes back to the younger son birthright your freedom to manifest abundance in your life comes through being aligned with your authentic self Uh, The authentic self bandwagon has a lot of followers today, friends. And I think the only collective sin that our society acknowledges is inauthenticity. That, like, rejecting our strongest desires. Most people would agree that that is wrong. I mean, to deny your sexual urges or your longing for bigger, better, or brighter, or to deny your quest to be happy. These things are seen as anathema in our day and our age. Did you know that the ancients used to talk about freedom? And they used to talk about freedom and saying that freedom is the ability to say no to desires that will destroy us if we give in to them. We now talk about freedom as the ability to say yes to whatever we want. And Jesus is drawing out for us the absolute craziness of giving in to every desire and living with a my will be done anthem. My, My mind goes back to the battle of two gardens You have the battle in the garden in Genesis 2 and 3, where Adam and Eve choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and essentially say back to God, God, thanks for creating us and we'll take it from here. We're going to go our own way. My will be done. The battle of the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would fall down and And he would pray and he would say, going a little bit further, he falls on his face and he prays, my father, if it's possible, if it's possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, not my will be done, your will be done. Man, you guys, it creeps in so subtly, doesn't it? that echo of the anthem of the garden of the younger son, my will be done. And I think Jesus would wanna say gently to us today, maybe it's time to let that go. Maybe you let it go and surrender. And a lot of us live with a my will be done posture back to God because of things that have happened to us because of the pain that we have walked through because of the things that we've experienced in life. And I think Jesus would just invite us today to bring all of that to his throne and to say, gosh, God, we wanna surrender afresh, not my will, but yours be done one more thing about the story. It's, it's not explicitly stated, but I think we can extrapolate it pretty easily and then see it later on in the story. Um, the father's fairly wealthy, isn't he? He's got more than enough. Uh, not only that, but the second thing is that everybody who's living on the father's land has plenty. We see that later on in the story. There's, there is more than enough to go around. And yet somewhere along the way, we're not exactly sure when and we're not exactly sure what happened, but somewhere along the way, the younger son starts to believe this lie. In order to live life to the fullest, I've got to leave the father's house. In order to have enough, I've got to leave the father's house. In In order to be happy, I've got to leave the father's presence. And somewhere along the way, this distrust in the father's goodness started to take hold in the soul of the younger son. See, see, sin is not just selfishness, it's not just autonomy, but it's also distrust. It's saying back to God, God, I'm not sure that I can trust you. This is the exact same thing that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, is it not? I mean, the enemy says to them, did God really say? And then he follows it up with, you won't really die. You know what's gonna happen? Your eyes are gonna be opened. And then after that, you're gonna be like God. The not so subtle message that the enemy seeds in the garden is if you want the good life, you've got to leave God. And you know what? God is holding out on you. You can't trust his goodness and his mercy and his grace to you, which is absolute lunacy, friends. It's just craziness. I mean, we live, God is the author of life according to Acts chapter 3, verse 15. Colossians chapter one says that not only does he create all life, but he sustains all life. Just take a deep breath for me right now, really deep. Like just, and then breathe out. The scriptures would say, you've just experienced the grace of God. It's a gift from him. So Paul's rightful exclamation about God's creative work is for from him and through him and to him are how many things? all things, including our lives. So to him be the glory and the honor and the praise forever and ever. Amen. And I don't know what kind of things have happened in your life that maybe have caused you to look back at God and say, I'm not sure I can trust you. I think he would graciously say back to you, take a deep breath, look around you, bring all that pain, bring all the sorrow, Bring all the doubts, bring all the questions, but bring them to my throne, recognize who I am. And then the invitation is to lay prostrate before him to say, God, you are the creator of it all. You created me and you've got me in the palm of your hands. And maybe all you can utter today is what Peter utters when Jesus does some things that Peter doesn't understand and doesn't like, but he says back to Jesus, where else can we go? you have the words of eternal life. I love that because it's such a low bar. Peter's looking around and he's going, gosh, I I wish there were other options because this is getting weird. Read it, it's John six. It's getting weird. But he goes, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And maybe that's your prayer back to God this morning. God, I don't know where else, there's nowhere else for me to go. You're the creator, you're the sustainer. And so I'm gonna posture my life before you and live out of a conviction of trust. See, those are the anthems that are at the heart of sin. Give me mine, I'll decide how I wanna live. And God, I don't trust you. And recognize that at their core, every single one of those statements are relational in nature. Because sin is always a breach in relationship before it's a breaking of law. This is our story. As we come to the end of of our time together today, I just wanna sort of focus in as much as we can on the father in this story. Because he's such a compelling figure. Doesn't say a whole lot at this point, but you sort of just see his heart, don't you? I mean, our heart breaks for him. The expected reaction from the father would have been refusal to acquiesce to the son's desires and punishment for even thinking to ask something so callous and so painful. But I love the way that William Temple just captured it. He said, God grants us freedom even to reject his love. Adam and Eve rejected the love of the father. So does the younger son. So do we, this is our story. However, I want you to notice that the father remains the father in it all. As if to say, the younger son can say, I'm choosing to leave, but the father can say, I'm still choosing to love. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel friends that sin prohibits us from experiencing God's love, but it does not stop God from loving And I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't know how dark it is. And I don't know what thoughts are dancing around in your head as we walk through this passage. But here's what I know. Regardless of where you've done, what you've done, or where you've been, the heart of the Father towards you is still love. It's still mercy. It's still grace. And your actions toward him will never change his affection for you. Ever, ever. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God loves and so he gives. Selfishness says, give me mine. But the heart of the father says, I will give myself for you. There's a really interesting thing that happens in in the Greek, which is what this uh, story was originally written in that doesn't necessarily come through in our English translations of this story. See, in verse 12, it says, and the younger of the sons came to his father and said, father, give me my share of the what? Property Property. that's coming to me. And he divided his what? Yeah. It's the same word in the English, but those are different words in the Greek. Uh, The first one is the word oisia, and it literally means property or wealth. (laughs) But the second Word that we translate property is actually bion. The root word is bios. It's where we get our English word biology or the study of life. So the younger son asks for wealth and the father divides his life between them. And he divides his life for us too. He gave his life for our redemption. Why? Because even if we reject him, he will never stop loving us. He loves the whole world. The most vile offender, the most ardent atheist, the most self-righteous Pharisee, all of them, he refuses to stop loving. And even though sin causes us to not experience the goodness and love of God, it does not mean he stops loving. It's his nature to love. So throughout this week, I was wondering, okay, how do I, how do I wrap this up? And, and what can I give you that would actually be helpful this week? Hopefully the story itself is helpful. You can climb around inside of it. But I think there's a few things that I wanna leave us with. Number one, if sin is a breach in relationship before it's ever a breaking in law, I think as Jesus followers, what needs to be first and foremost in our mind is relationship with God. The question, God, am I, am I hearing your voice? God, am I walking in step with you? God, is my, is my heart on fire with love for you? I think so much of the time, especially in the evangelical church, we devolve into the gospel of sin management. Like, like white knuckle it, try really hard not to sin. And when you try really hard not to sin, do you know what you're focusing on? Sin. You know how many people that's helped? None. And so Jesus is reframing this whole story for us. He's bringing us back to what Jesus would say when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall not sin. No. No, here's what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he does not say, do not sin. He says, love with everything you have. Love with everything you have. So what if as a community of faith, we took this to be not just a story, but our story. I think we should focus on loving God, not on avoiding sin. That that would be our focus. And I'm not saying just go ahead and sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you wanna walk free from sin, it means having a heart that's drawn in affection to your good father. That's what it looks like. In fact, Jesus would make it really clear. And he'd say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you might go, well, well, Ryan, how in the world do we sort of stoke the flame of the fire in our heart to to love God more? I'm so glad you asked that because John, when he was writing to the churches said, we, what, love, Love. because he first, what, (laughs) loved God. Us And if you wanna obey Jesus, that means you have to love Jesus. But if you wanna love Jesus, you've got to first be convinced that he loves you. So friends, this whole life that we call the Christian life is bound up in recognizing the immense, unbelievable, good, gracious, vast love of God. That, that's at its core, that's at its heart and everything else flows out of that. The moment we come, become deaf to, the, deaf to the voice that calls us beloved, we become susceptible to sin. But if our heart is captured with the goodness and grace of God, we are untouchable by the enemy, amen? amen. Secondly, secondly, and I'm gonna make this point really, really brief. <laughs> I think this story would invite us, we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but to make repentance a normal part of our lives. Did you know that in the very first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door that launched the Protestant Reformation, the very first was all of life is repentance. Here's what I want you to hear. The heart posture of love toward God does not, I repeat, does not mean that we always get it right. It means that we always come home. That's what it means. It doesn't mean we always get it right. It means that we always come home. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you go, okay, like selfishness, yup. Autonomy, yup. Distrust, yup. I'm three for three, Paulson. I have great news for you. The love of the father has not changed because of your actions. He's a loving God who says, I have divided my life so that you can come home. Repentance is simply changing our mind that changes our direction. Instead of running away from God, we run back to him. He's a good father. He sings a good song over us mercy, grace, who am I, who am I that the king of kings should know my name and yet he calls me a child of God. He does the same over you by faith in Jesus. What mercy, what grace. See, we've got to look the darkness in the eye if we're gonna have the grace explode in our heart. So that's what we're doing today, looking at the nature of sin, it's selfishness, it's autonomy, it's distrust. We wanna come and repent of that before God, but we also wanna remind ourselves that the invitation to love is always there because the Father never stops loving us. Amen? Let's pray. So Lord, we would just acknowledge that If we were to cut the world in two, we'd see what's eating away at the rind. And it's the same thing that's eating away at us. It's sin. It's our selfishness. It's our desire to have your stuff, but not live in obedience to you and not listen to your voice. It's a posture that makes us skeptical of you and doubting of you, your goodness and in your intentions. But Lord, we're so grateful that you're like the father in this story, that even though we may do our best to remove ourselves from experiencing your love, you never stop loving. Thank you that you, you find us and you bring us home again and again. And again. And so, Lord, we would just say back to you today that we love you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for your nature and for your character, for staying true to who you are, even when we're true to who we are. We thank you that you bring us home. We love you. We turn back to you. And we long to feel your embrace even in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.